Wow. Thank you, choir. Scott, Faye, Nathan, thank you. We serve a holy God whose glory is indeed great, and we long to see that glory spread throughout the earth. And that's why we do the things we do here at Woodmont. Even knitting can be missional. We are desperately in need of Habitat volunteers. Uh, next, this upcoming Saturday, we need 25. I saw a much bigger church than ours that committed uh, 16 people to a build, that's great. We committed 25, and so I think we can do it, but please see Andrew in the green shirt, raise your hand, raise your hand, get him up, there you go. Uh, go see Andrew if you're free this Saturday and can give a few hours to go build a house for a family that desperately needs a house. Even knitting is missional, but you have to be careful uh, how you present knitwits to people that may not know our church or our culture. One Wednesday night, I was going through the prayer list at our, our prayer meeting at, at our worship time at the midweek service, and we were praying for Miss Sarah Johnson, who's here today. Miss Sarah made it today. We're so glad to have her with us. And as we were praying for Sarah, I said, you may not know her, but she's a nitwit. And everybody said, what? That's so mean. Why could you say that about her? And man, it's really harsh. And I was like, no, I'm sorry. It's a knitting group that we have, and try to explain it, but... The Nitwits are a neat bunch. I get to hang out with them. They let me come in there, and I don't knit, but I, I hang out a little bit. And They pray, and they knit, and they pray, and they knit. And it's for mission that they do this. It's just, I love it about our church that everything we do has a missional aspect. The deacons challenged us to park missionally, park missionally, park along Hillsborough Road over here to, to show people that our church is, is full of life and enthusiasm. Park missionally. Everything can be missional. The way you eat your cereal can be missional. Everything we do is because of our holy God and his great glory. So this morning, we're going to continue to walk through the Gospel of John. We're in this beautiful part. We're, we're about to finish it up, actually, uh, the farewell discourse where Jesus is giving his disciples his last words, his famous last words before he is betrayed and arrested and crucified and then resurrected. Uh, but before all of that, he gives them these crucial last instructions before he goes back to God the Father. We're gonna be in John 16, verses one through 15. Will you stand in honor of God's word this morning? As I read our text for today, hear now the word of the Lord. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, 
because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, when I was a kid growing up, uh, there weren't a whole lot of TV shows that my family and I would watch together. You know, uh, most of them were either inappropriate for me and my sister as kids or my sister and I are very different and we just didn't find any of the same TV shows appealing in any way. But one that we could all watch together was Home Improvement. Remember Home Improvement? Tim Allen played Tim the Toolman Taylor. And the, the premise of the show, I know it's, it's still in syndication, it's on reruns and stuff now, but the premise is that Tim the Toolman, uh, he runs a TV show about home improvement. And his wife and him are raising three boys as well in their own home. And at many points during the show, when he would encounter a problem uh, on the show within the show, uh, he would say, oh, I know what we need here. What we need is, and the audience would say, yeah, you know, Roberts know it. Yeah, more power. They would all yell, more power. And he'd go, yeah, 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 yeah. And he would get some huge absurd tool that would end up destroying things even more. Um, sometimes more power isn't always more power. But he would do this grunt noise whenever he got fired up about bigger and better tools. He'd go, ah, oh, ah, oh, ah, oh, ah. He would do this grunt, you know. And what I've noticed after working here for the last two and a half years is that our facility director, Ron Landis, in the bright orange shirt back there. Raise your hand, Ron. There he is. Ron and Tim the Toolman, Taylor, have a lot in common. They are very similar in, in, in all the best ways. When Ron starts talking about some cool device or knocking out a big project here at Woodmont, he inevitably goes into that grunt. You know, he'll be describing the new... $80,000 air conditioning unit that we got. He said, oh, it's four tons. It's got four separate air handlers, and it's got all, it's got a crane coming in to lift it over. The, oh, oh, yeah. He starts grunting, and I love it. I love it. He gets so fired up about it. And I'll be telling him about some new tool that I got, and he's like, oh, did you get the 40 volt? I'm like, yeah, I got the big, the big battery. Oh, it's, it's getting cut through a tree. It's great. <laughs> and we like things that are powerful, some of us more than others, but we we tend to believe that powerful things, it's true, they do get the job done quicker. Things that are powerful are more effective. Things that are powerful change things because they have power to them. When Morgan and I were uh, living in Alabama, we bought our first house, uh, like circa 2007, somewhere in there. And the house was beautiful, it had a big backyard and a bunch of trees, and in June it looked great. I didn't realize that by the end of October, that backyard was completely full of leaves. So I bought a rake, and I raked, and I raked, and I raked, and my hands had blisters, and my back hurt, and I, it wasn't getting the job done. So my mentor and, and, and neighbor and coworker who lived down the street said, what are you, you're wasting your time, man. Get a blower. 
get a, get a gas-powered blower. And I said, okay, okay. And I, I got one that generated 250 miles an hour of wind. And I could blow the whole backyard full, I mean, completely empty of leaves in about 20 minutes, what used to take me hours and hours to do, because I had this power behind this tool that I was using. The power of the blower was much greater than the power of the rake, even with me behind it. What I've come to learn about churches over the years is that some are more effective than others. Some churches are seeing lives changed for eternity on an ongoing, constant basis and giving God all the glory. They have a passion for people around them who are lost and searching. They give generously to advance God's kingdom in their own neighborhood and around the world. They see people coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ through their evangelistic fervor and, and endeavors. They're fired up about the gospel and they want to share it with others around them. They see people who are delivered from the chains of addiction, who are set free from the bondage that they were in, couples whose marriages are saved, adult children who come back to the faith after years of wandering in the wilderness. They love to worship. They love to be in God's presence and to sing praises to his name, his holy name, because he deserves it and he's marvelous and worthy. Other churches that, that I've experienced, I'm sure you have too, are just getting along. They're just kind of going through life. They may be full of nice people. Some churches are huge churches that have a lot of great folks in them, but a lot of those people don't really take their faith too seriously. I've been accused by someone who's a, a church worker, as someone in the ministry, of taking my faith too seriously. What? <laughs> People who don't take their faith seriously don't really care about worship, as long as the music's, you know, not too loud, or they play some songs that they like or something. They don't really care about the preaching, as long as they can get out on time and get to their lunch spot before everybody else. They don't ever really think about intentionally starting spiritual conversations with people who are lost and searching around them in their lives that God has placed in their lives. So what's the difference in, in those kind of churches, churches that are powerful and effective and churches that are just getting by? Is it the pastor? Do churches that are powerful and effective have a rock star pastor? No, I don't think that's it. Is it the worship style? Is it churches that are powerful and effective have rock and roll bands or, or churches that are powerful and effective have big choirs and organs? No, it's not about worship style, of course. I think the one determining factor in whether a church is effective or not is this. Is it full of the Holy Spirit? Is it full of the Holy Spirit? A lot of evangelical churches have been rightfully accused of worshiping a false trinity. We tend to lift high the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. We tend to neglect the third person of the trinity, the Holy Spirit, 
The Holy Ghost, ooh, we don't like ghosts. We don't believe in ghosts. We're sensible. We're educated people. We don't get caught up in those emotional, ecstatic experiences that Pentecostal and, and uncouth kind of people we get engaged in because we're respectable, we're dignified. You know, I've heard it said that, you know, we tend to elevate the word of God to the place where God himself should be. We revere the book more than we revere the author, and that's a problem, and I've been guilty of it myself. We need to remember the importance of the Holy Spirit because if we're gonna be the kind of church that attempts great things for God and expects great things from God, then we must be filled with the Holy Spirit, both individually and corporately as a church family. The Spirit is, is you know, every Christmas we celebrate Emmanuel. Emmanuel means what? God with us. But guess what? Ever since Acts chapter two, God came to us again in the form of the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. God is with us now. Emmanuel, God with us, God came in the form of the Holy Ghost to dwell in the hearts of Christians and to enable us to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, just like we talked about last week. Remember last week we talked about how the fact that we have the Spirit in us who sanctifies us and separates us from the world and makes us God's own possession, that that means that we have this Holy Spirit in us who makes us new from the inside out, which means we are no longer like the world in which we used to dwell. We've quit our, our open rebellion against the true King of Kings, and we've pledged our allegiance now to the rightful ruler of all. But that means that the other rebels around us aren't too happy with us now because we've gone back to the king. Look at verse two here in, in our text for today. Jesus says to his disciples, look guys, they're gonna put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming whenever, when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they'll do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. That's why he prayed on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. He's basically saying, I'm giving you guys a heads up. So if you thought that it was gonna be all fun and games after I left, and you are now the leaders of this new thing called the church, I'm telling you these things so you won't be disillusioned. And indeed, like I said last week, we know that 10 of the 11 remaining disciples were martyred, all except for John, who lived into old age, according to most historical accounts that we can see. So then Jesus explains he's going away in the midst of this persecution that's coming, that he's leaving. You're going to have a really hard time, and I'm out of here. <laughs> But it's actually a good thing. Look at verse five. Now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? They don't ask him that anymore. Peter asked him that earlier. They don't ask him that anymore, because they know. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He's, he's giving them these last words of encouragement and power. 
But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Imagine the disciples. I mean, again, I'm so cynical. I would have heard Jesus say, it's actually going to be a good thing. I would have said, yeah, right. You're God in the flesh, and you're leaving? This is a dire situation they're in. Judas has already slipped off into the night. The leaders of Jerusalem, where they're gathered, are all plotting how to kill Jesus. We know that Jesus has just told Peter, you're going to deny me too, man. It's not a good situation. Jesus says, I'm leaving, and it's to your advantage that I leave you to it. The advantage, of course, is the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the helper, the advocate, the parakletos that was introduced in John 14. Who Remember, parakletos means one who's called alongside of, like me running alongside of May, holding her bike until she could do it on her own. And even then, I ran ahead of her in case she fell. The, the paraclete does that with us. He runs alongside of us. He encourages us. He's there to pick us back up and dust off our scrapes when we fall. That's the paracletos. And unlike Jesus, the Spirit is not confined to one specific place. The Spirit goes anywhere and everywhere as he so chooses. Jesus ministered in power everywhere he went, from village to village, town to town, place to place, healing the sick, healing the blind, the lame. But the Spirit moves in power across the whole world at the same time. And there's another key advantage that the Spirit brings, besides being omnipresent, he brings understanding. He brings spiritual understanding and opens the eyes of our hearts, as we sang earlier today, to see the spiritual reality of this world and of the kingdom. To people who love Jesus, this is an amazing gift to have the lies of this world exposed and the true, deeper reality, God's reality, come to light. That's a great thing. But for people who reject Jesus, this is terrifying. They'd rather believe the lies that they've come to build their lives upon. When they learn that they've bet their life on a facade, it all comes crumbling down. The theological term for this kind of spirit-given understanding is illumination. It's a great word, isn't it? Illumination is the process by which God the Spirit comes to us and gives us insight that our human brains could never have perceived on our own. You know, when I read my Bible, I always pray a little quiet, silent prayer that the Holy Spirit would come and illuminate the text for me, that the eyes of my heart would be open so that I could truly see what it is that God wants me to see in that text. But the Spirit illuminates much more than Scripture. He reveals all kinds of spiritual realities to us. Look at verse 8 in our text. When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning three things, sin and righteousness and judgment. 
You see, apart from the work of the Spirit, we're, we're hopelessly blind to the spiritual realities around us. We're blind to the true reality of these really important things, what sin really is, what actual righteousness actually looks like, and what judgment really means. So why is this? Why is the world blind to these things? Why does the world not have understanding of sin and righteousness and judgment? Well, Jesus explains it in verse nine. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. That's the starting point to understand sin, to believe in Jesus. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. I'm not gonna be here to show what God's standard of righteousness is. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You know the, the old saying, what, what they don't know can't hurt them, or you know, what you don't know can't hurt you? That, that certainly does not apply here. What you, we don't know can lead us to death and destruction in this life and the next. The word that's used in verse eight for convict, it says the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world, that word is, is a legal term in Greek, and it, it, it implies uh, putting a witness on the stand and cross-examining that witness in order to refute or expose the argument that that witness is making. So the Holy Spirit takes all the other truth claims that the world offers as ultimate truth, and he puts them on the witness stand, and, and he tears down their arguments. He shows that left to our own devices, we have no clue about the reality of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit convicts us of sin. It, it exposes the, the many realities of the nature of sin. You know, sin in today's culture, people talk about, you know, a really fattening dessert being sinfully indulgent. And that's, like, that's sin. <laughs> Eating a Twinkies, sin or something. Maybe people use sin to say uh, a mistake or an error that someone made as if it only affects that individual. That's, that's not at all the reality of sin. The reality of sin that the Spirit reveals is so much deeper than that. Sin in, in, in Greek is hamartia, it means to miss the mark. Sin is anything that misses God's perfection standard of holiness that we sang about earlier. Sin is our natural bent. St. Augustine said that our natural bent, our inclination as humans is to be curved in on ourselves, in curvatus se, to be bent in on ourselves where we can't open to the goodness and greatness of God and to each other. If we miss the target, if we're constantly missing the target, we become a danger to ourselves and to others around us. The Spirit brings about in us this deep sense that we are broken, that we are, are deeply flawed and we can't fix it ourselves. That's the important thing to remember in our culture of high achieving, high achievement, success driven people. David Brooks, I'm loving his book, The Road to Character. He's a columnist and he's an author who's, he's born Jewish but he's not really religious at all. He said this beautiful quote that's such a gospel quote, and I just, I wanna tell him about Jesus. 
If you think you can organize your own salvation, you are magnifying the very sin that keeps you from it. And that, that's so good. If you think you can organize your own salvation, you're actually magnifying the very sin that keeps you from it. Our pride would, would have us believe that we can handle our sin problem. We got a sin problem, but I can manage it. it sounds like the language of addiction, doesn't it? By the way, next Sunday night, celebrating, celebrate grace. It's gonna be awesome. Uh, celebrate recovery is gonna have a worship time here. Testimonies will be, it's a citywide gathering uh, to celebrate God's chain-breaking freedom that comes through Christ. Uh, you're all invited. It's going to be a, an awesome evening of, of worship and glorifying God. But pride says that you don't need a Savior. You're okay on your own. You're a pretty good person. The gospel says, though, that yes, we are desperately flawed, but in Christ we have a Savior who loves us more than we could ever have dared to believe, and he can do what we never could have done on our own. We have a, a mighty rescuer who's mighty to save and can make the wrong things in us right when we were hopeless to do so on our own. We see a great biblical example of that kind of Holy Spirit conviction in Acts chapter two. Remember when, when the Holy Spirit shows up and Peter, who's that you know, disciple that I relate so much to because he just sticks his foot in his mouth over and over and over again. He's the mouthpiece for the disciples. He jumps up full of the Holy Spirit, and he gives this incredible sermon, like one of the best sermons ever delivered, and he ends it like this, Acts 2, 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The crowd that was gathered in Jerusalem for that mighty occasion of Pentecost feast, they heard the gospel on that day, and the Holy Spirit convicted many of them of their sin to the point that they were cut to the heart, but that was the best wound they'd ever received because it led to life eternal. 3,000 people surrendered their lives that day to Jesus Christ, and they joined this fledgling movement called the church. We must be convicted of our sin by the Spirit. And the other side of the coin from sin is righteousness. The righteousness of Christ that's ours through the Holy Spirit. Yes, we are broken. Yes, we are desperately flawed. But the good news is that Jesus can impute his perfect righteousness into us. You know, our culture is confused about sin. It's also confused about righteousness. Our culture tends to put our best face forward on social media, kind of a false pretense of who we'd like to be. And we compare ourselves constantly on social media and other places to others. And we tend to compare ourselves when it comes to righteousness to really, quote, bad people. We compare ourselves to drug dealers or serial adulterers and we, adulterers and we say, hey, I'm not that bad. 
I'm a good person. I don't do that stuff. We tend to buy into the lie that if we have a shred of righteousness in us, maybe 20% righteous, maybe even 50%, maybe even 80%, I'm a really good person. I am. That that's grounds for our salvation. That that's a reason that we should gain entrance into God's heaven. You may even come to church often. You may even give some money to the church. You may even teach a Sunday school class. You may even be a deacon. You may even be a pastor. It doesn't matter. None of it does. The Holy Spirit reveals a different standard for what true righteousness is. Jesus tells us how much righteousness God requires from us in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, that's tough, Jesus. Those guys have a lot of rules, man. They follow every rule. They spend their whole day thinking about the rules and how they can follow the rules. I don't know if I can be that good. Pharisees are like spiritual rock stars, man. They're, they're way above all the rest of us. And then Jesus sums up his point. They don't get it. In, in a few verses later, Matthew 5, 48, you therefore, listen, must be perfect. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I taught this one time to a group of teenagers, and one kid who was really thinking about it said, that's terrible. We're, we're all doomed. He said, what are we going to do? No one's perfect. I was like, yeah, you're right. That's great. That's the exact proper response to God's righteousness is that I'm not worthy. I don't meet that standard. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you of what true righteousness is. No matter how good you are. This was a great kid from a great family. He'd been a Christian a long time, but he knew he wasn't perfect on his own. That's a great starting point. You know what the old Avis slogan was, Avis car rental? We try harder. A lot of people think that's the way to heaven. Just keep trying harder. But the Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts to the reality that our very best doesn't come close to Jesus' standard of righteousness. When we're convicted of this, we abandon the Avis syndrome of trying harder. We abandon all hope of salvation through our 50% righteousness or our 80% righteousness. I've heard preachers say that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We're all on the same level at that point when we kneel at the cross of Christ and receive his free gift of salvation. It's here that we can pray what Paul prays in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, that he could be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends not on me, but on faith in Christ. That's how the gospel works on a person. That's how grace works. The grace of God comes through the Holy Spirit moving in a person stirring their soul to this holy discontentment. Kent Hughes says, uh, unworthiness is the driving awareness of the man or woman in the process of grace. 
Only the Holy Spirit can bring this awareness. Finally, the third reality that the Spirit illuminates in our lives is judgment. Judgment is not a very popular or fashionable word in our culture, especially among youths and young people. We don't like to judge. We're told to be tolerant of anything and everything. So judging something or someone especially is always seen as wrong. We, we disparage those old-timey preachers who talk about God's judgment as out of touch and insensitive. But Jesus says here in verse 11 that the Holy Spirit shows us what true judgment is. This is not bad news because the ruler of this world is judged. Hey, that's kind of nice. That sounds good. God's judgment is not something for us to fear. God's judgment for those of us who are in Christ, for those who are allegiant to the true king, is something we should long for, something we ache for in our bones. God's judgment isn't on those who've been covered by the blood of the lamb. God's judgment is on Satan and on his destructive forces. God's judgment simply means setting the wrongs right. God's judgment is correcting the broken, twisted ways of this world into what they should be, where every hill and valley shall be made level. And we know that in the end, his judgment will prevail. And that's a good thing. Way back in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3.15, we're told that Satan, yes, he will strike and bruise Christ's heel, but Christ will crush his head. So we can confidently say our enemy has been dealt a, a death blow, a mortal blow. We can sing with the saints, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, many of you here today feel like Satan's about to undo you. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Do you want to live by the truth today? Do you want to live in the highest level of reality? Or are you content living the lie? We all buy into the lies of the world at some point in our weakness. Those lies will someday let us down badly. It will not end well. Look at verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears from God the Father, he will speak. And he will declare to you in his omniscience the things that are to come. There's a lot of great books out there. I wish I had read them all. I'm finishing my dissertation. I got a stack of books I can't wait to read next semester. There's a lot of great schools around here. I've attended two of them. But none of these things can show us how to live into the truth, no matter how smart we are, no matter how accomplished we are, no matter how successful we are. We all need God, the Spirit, to come into our hearts and to guide us by his divine power and illumination. Then we will be the kind of people that can thrive 
and flourish into God's ways as we hit the target more and more. Then we can be the kind of church that's full of the Holy Spirit and plays an active role in seeing heaven come to earth. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth that you have shown us today, that you sent your spirit to us, not to condemn us, not to simply convict us of sin, but then to show us what true righteousness is as well. That there is a perfect, holy standard that you can give us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, not through anything we do, God. Even the ability to come to you by faith is a gift of you. Let us be grateful this morning. Let us worship and return praise to you for the way that you have saved us, all by your grace and for your glory. God, I pray that you would fill us as individuals and as a church with your Holy Spirit power. May we be effective in advancing your kingdom, that your will would be done through Woodmont on earth as it is in heaven, that we would see lives transformed for eternity, for your glory, for your kingdom's sake. God, I pray that in the big and the small things, in the way that we greet one another, in the way that we build a habitat house, in the way that we see addiction chains fall off through Celebrate Recovery, God, I pray that in all of those things, that your Holy Spirit would compel us to greater and greater things. You told us in John 14 that even greater things than what Jesus did, you will do through your church. I pray that you would allow us to see that as we are convicted of sin, convicted of righteousness, and convicted of true judgment. Thank you for judging the enemy. Thank you for defeating death so that we don't have to fear death, we don't have to fear the enemy anymore because evil cannot harm us. You are sovereign over all. We love you, we pray these things in the powerful and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. We're gonna have a time of response now. We're gonna sing Just As I Am uh, without one plea. It's nothing that I have, God. It's all Jesus Christ. We come 100% because of the blood of Jesus and what he's done for us that we could never have done on our own. If you need to accept Jesus, if you feel like the Spirit is convicting you of sin today and you need to repent and come to the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Don't delay and come today just as you are. Maybe you want to become a part of Woodmont Baptist Church and you feel like the Lord has led you here to join this church as a member and to commit to be on track with us on this journey as we seek to advance God's kingdom in Green Hills, in Nashville, in Dominica, and around the world. Maybe you just want to come pray at the altar. It'll be open here to, for anyone who needs to come and pray during this time. I'm going to ask Trey if you'll come stand here. I'm going to ask Morgan if you'll come stand over here. Rachel, if you'll come stand up here too. If you want to pray with one of these people, they'll be here to receive you. Uh, just pray with them or you can just come pray at the altar. Whatever it is that you need to do today, maybe you're convicted of your hurt and habit and hang up that is going on in your life and you want to talk to Eddie over here or Ron Frost over here about Celebrate Recovery uh, and, and get involved in what God's doing there. Whatever it is you need to do, let's stand and sing just as I am from our hearts straight to God's heart.